This podcast brought to you by Hope 103.2. G'day, welcome back to another LifeWords Q&A with David Ray, Andrew Morris. Over the next 15 minutes, we're going to be tackling your questions that you emailed David at LifeWords at hopemedia.com.au. Welcome to the program, David. Thanks, Andrew. Good to be here again. We've got another great uh, three questions for you. So are you ready? Yep. Okay, let's start with uh, our first question. How come Jesus says to people that he hasn't come to bring peace but division? Isn't he supposed to be the Prince of Peace, David? Yeah, Andrew, well, it's one of the many surprising sayings of Jesus. If you had spare time, you could actually go through the Gospels and dig out all the um, statements that Jesus make that seem to be a bit outrageous and contradictory. He, he, he really challenges you. Um, you see, he's like any good teacher. He wants to grab our attention. Uh, and he's done, do, doing this here. Um, now, 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 here what he's saying is this. He's come to bring about peace with God and, as a consequence, a greater degree of peace amongst human beings. Now, that, that that's pretty clear. But not everyone wants what he offers. See, Jesus has come to offer peace with God and you get peace with God by accepting your need of mercy and God's provision of mercy. But there's many people who don't want or think that they need peace with God. So what happens people will be hostile to the Prince of Peace because they don't think they want or need the peace he's offering. Um, but not only that, Jesus specifically refers to divisions within families. We, and we know this. One person in a family might accept Jesus' offer of peace with God, go along with repentance, faith, and all this sort of thing. But another person in the family might say, no way, I, I, I don't want peace with God. I don't think I need peace with God. I don't believe in what Jesus is saying. What that means is there's automatic division. So the Prince of Peace has come to offer peace with God. That's fine. But one person in a family accepts the peace and another person doesn't. Now, now therefore, there's division. Now, that might not be outright hostility. Um, it's not as if um, a, a Christian in a family hates the non-Christian in the family or vice versa. It's not always that, or not usually that. Um, but we do know of families that are divided by faith, um, e even if they're all on their best behaviour. It does happen, and it can be a sad thing that happens, that one person gives their total allegiance to Jesus, another person thinks Jesus is just not what he's cracked up to be. And so inevitably, even if there's not hostility, there is division. So Jesus hasn't actually come rubbing his hands with glee saying, oh, beauty, I'm going to bring division into families. He doesn't want to bring division. He wants to bring peace. But he knows that when he brings peace, that there are some people who are not going to accept the offer. And so therefore, they're going to have problems with him. So what Jesus is doing here with his disciples is warning us to expect difficulties. He's saying, guys, some of you will accept me. And that's really good. Um, but hey, um, what it might mean is that you might have peace with God and so on, or peace within yourself, but sadly there'll be other people who'll see life differently who you won't be at peace with. Because fundamentally the gospel is good news to some, but it's not so good news to others. Now, David, I, I remember reading uh, in the Gospels, Jesus talking about, I guess you could see it as a divisive thing. I remember when I read it that I have to love Jesus more than my mother and my father. He yeah. he says that you've got to look, you've got to disown your parents in a way or your family and love me. He said me. to hate them. He said to hate yes, them. Yes, yes. So that could be seen as divisive as well. But that was what's the point he's saying there? Oh, I think the point he's saying is there's there's a hierarchy of loyalties. There's a, there's a level of loyalties. And I don't think for one minute Jesus is literally saying in the Aramaic when he says to hate your father and mother, it just simply means to love less. 
Now, even yeah. that, of course, loving less might seem a, a, a problem. But no, I think what Jesus is saying is ultimately this. The great commandment is to love God uh, with all your whole heart, mind and soul and so on. He says, do that. But he also says, love your neighbour as yourself. And of course, your neighbour, obviously, is, it certainly includes your family. I think what he's saying is, look, um, love me as the primary love. And with under the umbrella of that primary love, all the other loves will fit into place. I believe if we love Jesus with our whole heart, uh, that our love of our spouse, our love of our children, our love of our family will become enriched. Jesus is not setting himself up as a competitor there. It looks as though he is, but he's not. He's basically saying, don't, don't, don't make an idol even of your family. Don't, don't put love of your family or don't think of love of your family in such a way that you'd ignore or dismiss me. What he's saying is bring me into the picture. And, and it might seem egotistical, but he's saying as the, as, as the son of God, he's saying, put me in first place and I can pretty well guarantee you that all those things in second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth place are vitally and, and critically important, but they will become enriched. So love me, love your wife, love your, uh, your kids, whatever you do, l- put all those loves in place, but make sure those loves are in the proper place. Wonderful. You're listening to LifeWords Q&A with David Ray, Andrew Morris. We're moving on to our second question, David. And it looks like we've got a bit of a social media question here. Some of my Christian friends have decided to drop out of Facebook and Twitter. They reckon it's the best Christian option, but I'm not so sure. Well, you would be a mean Facebooker, wouldn't you? <laughs> not really. Um, I'm what they call a lurker on Facebook. Ah. I, I, I lurk. You watch. I, I hardly ever contribute to it, um, but I find it helpful. And look, we're genuinely aware of the dangers of social media. Um, we know the dangers. It can focus on what can be shallow, on appearances, how hard it is to debate things. Never, ever, ever the 11th commandment should be never, ever enter into serious theological debate on Facebook and certainly not on Twitter. Uh, you can't do that. Um, misinformation can spread. Uh, there's no substitute for face-to-face communication, all that. But the question is this, uh, behind this, this question that's been asked, should those problems, which we all admit, should it cause us to give up on social media altogether? Now, I know Christian friends of mine, acquaintances of mine, and family members of mine who say uh, they will not go on Facebook because they see it as a bit of a snare for them. They'll take up too much time, they'll become preoccupied with it, it trivialises things and all that. Now, I've got to respect that. that that's absolutely fine. There's, there's, there's no problem with that. Um, but the, the, the problem is that it's not, that there's, there's a couple of problems with that. Uh, first of all, yes, Facebook, Twitter, TV and the internet, they can all be snares to us because they all contain mixed content. Um, it, I always shudder when I hear Christians say, well, I was looking up some subject. I, I was interested in understanding the Bible a bit more, so I did a Google search on a particular subject. And I have to say to people, that, that that's not bad in itself, but, oh, there's so much material out there that's unfiltered. Mm. You can get a whole lot of rubbish. But you can also get some really valuable stuff. Um, I, I think social media today can put us in touch with things and people that, that can do us great good. But there's also the rubbish that's around. So my point is, if someone says, I'm going to give up on Facebook or Twitter, yes, you are shielding yourself from the negative things that you will find there, but you're also um, removing yourself from some of the good things you can find. There's good things and not so good things. So the question is, in principle, are you prepared 
to withdraw from something you see as potentially a problem, realising that if you do withdraw from, say, Facebook, you're also withdrawing from things that could be of enormous benefit. Yep. And I would say that one of the things that's coming out through research too, David, is that, um, I mean... People are getting depressed from uh, from reading their Facebook feeds, and and that's because we're seeing a one dimension of people's lives. We're not seeing the whole picture. We're seeing the good times rather than uh, uh, the other sides of of questioning, of suffering, of hardship. That that they're rarely shared on Facebook. Yes, and and when they are, and I have seen some good instances of places, things like this, people's predicaments being shared on Facebook. But even then, that can create its own problems of breach of privacy and uh, to what extent is my sharing of suffering and other people's suffering a bit of exhibitionism and to what extent is it a very, very valid sort of way. I, I know some people who've got terrible health problems with children in their family who are sharing it all on Facebook amongst their friends, admittedly, and it's having an enormous amount of good because there's a, almost like a cyber community gathering around them prayerfully and carefully uh, as, as they walk through this painful journey. But at the same time, those things can be taken far too um, far. too far. The other thing behind this question, though, Andrew, is, is, is it's interesting. Um, um, they, they reckon, these Christian friends of the Christian, reckon it's the best Christian option, and, and we respect that. But just be careful. I think you've got to make your own decisions. I don't think people should um, force you to uh, or impose their views on you. It's not as if, um, you know, I've given up Facebook and Twitter or whatever, therefore I am holier than you are. No, you're not. Um, you're not. But you've got to face up to the fact if it is a snare to you or if you feel it creates such enormous problems, uh, then, uh, then, then, then yes, well, perhaps you need to refrain but it's, it's like we say to people, look, don't go to see that movie. Don't read that book if it's going to be a snare, whereas other Christians are fine. I, I know some Christians who occasionally communicate with me who have rigidly resolved we are not going to get on the internet at all. We are not going to because there's so much bad stuff on it. But they're constantly asking me questions about certain things um, and, and information about Christian things that I, that I, I, I feel like saying, oh, look, just check out this website. And, and they can't. Because they, they're not, in other words, withdrawing from all the dangers of the internet, they've in fact withdrawn from some of the benefits yeah. of it either. So, look, we each have to decide on such issues for ourselves. Others shouldn't impose their decisions on us. But I would say to anyone who's on Facebook, Twitter, um, Snapchat, Instagram, whatever it is, be very careful how you use it. There is no substitute for personal relationship. Be, be thankful to God for some of the benefits it can give, but be very, very aware of the dangers. And if you are spending too much time on any of these things, that in itself must be a problem. LifeWords Q&A, David Ray, Andrew Morris. You can subscribe to this podcast through the iTunes store. Just search for Hope Media, LifeWords Q&A. Otherwise, you can visit us at hope1032.com.au and you can uh, find previous episodes. Just go to the program uh, nav navigation and you'll find David's lovely face looking straight at you. Now, David, our final question for today, and uh, oh, this could get into nice uh, hot water, David, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Scientists seem to doubt whether the Earth was ever entirely covered by a flood as recorded in Genesis. Do we have to believe in a worldwide flood? Well, I don't know whether the question gets us into hot water, but it certainly gets us into water, doesn't it? It certainly um, does. It's true. Um, look, it raises a couple of issues. Um, first of all, the status of scientific evidence. It seems to me from discussing things with people that some Christians um, some Christians have a fundamental problem with science. You mentioned the word science, and they immediately say enemy, 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 enemy. 
um, um, uh, the the scientific evidence is not what it's tracked up to be. Uh, there's a conspiracy behind things. Um, is the evidence overwhelming? We have a different view of it, and all this sort of thing. And but but I don't think they should be so sceptical. Uh, there is good science and bad science, and the science itself is no enemy of the faith. So if if scientific evidence establishes a certain thing, we need not be inherently sceptical of it. But at the same time, we, we must be aware that even the responsible scientists will say, well, this is the evidence you know, that we have so far. We, we may change. So scientific, certain established scientific truths can change over the time. So we either are not naive and gullible to think that, oh, when a scientist says something, it must therefore be true and, and we, there can't be any other view. But nor can we go to the other extreme that sometimes Christians do and say, oh, science, oh, be careful about that. It's like Christians say the same thing about philosophy or psychology. They're not necessarily enemies of ours. But the second issue is the nature of biblical truth. Let me let me say say this. I personally, and I'm in good company here with many other Christians, don't believe the Bible teaches that a flood covers the whole earth as we know it. Now, I immediately admit the fact that other Christians think differently. I'm now, straight away, David, you're you're putting in a position that you're not reading the Bible as it's. You're basically questioning what the Bible says. So Indeed there I am, there are yes. many Christians saying, well, there was a flood. Creation was in seven days. Um, you know, Moses, Noah, all these people existed. It's historical fact because it's in the Bible. You're questioning that. Uh, yeah, well, it, and this might sound a little bit, um, um, uh, should be subtle, but um, historical fact. Um, historical fact means one thing I can tell you in the 21st century, but it meant something quite different in those days. You see, I am questioning. I, I'm not questioning the Scriptures, the truth of the Scriptures. I've lived out and taught the truth of the Scriptures for many decades, and I continue to do so. But I do believe that we've got to understand the nature of the Bible and how it's written. For example, on this particular thing, um, when the Genesis account says the flood covers the whole earth, I'm not bound to believe it covers the whole earth as we look at it on a globe of the world now. We are we we are looking at things from the perspective of the writer of Genesis, the Holy and Spirit inspired writer of Genesis, may I say. This wasn't just any human being making something up. But no, he was writing from a perspective. It was he was more or less saying, colloquially, as far as the eye can see, there was a flood covering the earth. And and that's fine. Of course, you can't expect, if you ask this primitive Genesis writer, I don't mean primitive in a moral sense, but yeah. he, was, he was ancient, uh, that, that, well, did the flood cover um, Argentina or Canada? He'd be thinking, what? I'm sorry, I don't know what you mean. Because back then, we didn't know the, ro- the, the world was round. Exactly, we didn't know that. So he, when he says the flood covers the whole earth, I've got no doubt that what the writer is saying is, well, the whole earth as I know it was covered by a flood. And mm. that's all we can expect him to know. We, we dare not impose 21st century historical principles and knowledge on these people who were writing um, in much earlier days. The whole earth, I think, means the earth as he knows it and can see. So we can argue for a widespread but not universal flood. Um, And if we read the Bible this way, there's no necessary conflict with scientific evidence. So if scientists say there's no evidence of a a flood at that time in the United States, say, we can say, so, that doesn't matter. You see... Some people might be saying, ah, but you're trying to explain hard bits of the Bible away. But but 
I, I don't think I've tried to do that. You're not going to find me explaining the miracles of Jesus away or the resurrection of Jesus away because these were written as sober historical narratives by gospel writers who were, if not eyewitnesses themselves, were related to or had connection to the eyewitnesses. Um, but when we're looking at, at, at what we might call prehistory, which is back in the times of Noah and so on, we're looking at people who were writing history, not from our 21st century accurate scientific perspective, but were writing from a different perspective. Now, you might again accuse me of saying, oh, but that means it's not true. Now, again, I have to say, what is truth here? To echo what Pilate said to Jesus, um, you know, truth can be poetic, metaphorical. Um, When the psalmist says the hills clap their hands, um, he's not being literally true but he's being poetically true we know what he's jolly well talking about and when you we mentioned in another q and a jesus says to hate your mother and father um yes we, we we can sense that we know what jesus is talking about without taking it with the literalness uh in our present understanding of the language look in the end um i don't get too bogged down with these particular debates because what i'm looking at when i look at the story of noah is uh, first of all, I'm quite happy to believe that um, there was an historical guy called Noah and there was a flood and there was a boat and he put not all animals, incidentally, into it because you couldn't possibly fit them all in, uh, uh, even in the world that he knew. But but it's, it's a story to me that God has communicated to us through his Holy Spirit to say the world turned away from God, there were consequences of it, but... The essence of the story is God does not want to wipe out the human race. The salvation of Noah and some animals through the ark was God's way of saying to us, the world might be desperately wicked, but the world has a future. And that, to me, is the fundamental message, and I'm quite happy to let the scientists and the other people debate about floods and so on, because I believe that's the message that God wants to get through to us today. Well, David, I think I'm going to have to write a question to you through the email lifewords at uh, hopemedia.com.au. And my question, and this is on notice, is going to be something, how do we read the Bible through today's lens? And how do we make sense of it? Because, um, and this is going to be my question, Dave, I'm asking, I'm telling you now, because you brought up a lot of questions there about, um, yeah, the, 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 the boat could possibly not have fitted all the animal species of uh, the globe into that one boat. So, but that's going to rock my. Is that going to rock my faith in my beliefs? So, it might rock your boat, Andrew. Yeah. So, I, interpreting the the Old Testament uh, through our eyes of whether that's prose and stories and fables to tell a truth. So maybe that's what we can look at. Da- well, David. certainly, Andrew, it, it will probably take a few segments because uh, look, what the thing you are touching on there is is a, is a critically important thing because. I, who love the Word of God and who teach the Word of God and who seek to follow the Word of God and believe that this the Bible is the Word of God, I certainly believe all that, uh, if, if it is that important, it is so important that we get it right. As, as the old saying is, the Bible's like powerful medicine. If you use it properly, it can do wonderful work for you. If you use it poorly, it can do a lot of danger. And I believe that by reading the Bible, either explaining away the hard bits in some what we might call liberal way is very harmful, but also seeking to preserve the precise literalness of the Bible is equally harmful because in each case we are not necessarily grasping the truth that God is trying to get through to us through his human writers writing with very different literary types. It's a big issue. It's an important issue. Christians disagree on it. There's no question about that, but it'll be good to give some attention to it in the future. 
You've been listening to LifeWords Q&A with David Ray. Till next time, we'll see you soon. Thanks for listening. Start your day with LifeWords. Subscribe to Hope 1032's free daily email devotional at hope1032.com.au.